morning. Morning. Good to be with you all. If you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we are continuing our way uh, through the book. We'll, we'll be starting at verse 14 this morning uh, in just a moment. Um, so, if you go to the official Alaska travel website, uh, they have uh, a sort of disclaimer that reads like this. Bigger, higher, stronger. It says, in a land of superlatives, Alaska's glaciers reign supreme, home to the country's largest glacial system, the world's largest Piedmont glacier that covers the, an area larger than Rhode Island, uh, the world's longest interior valley glacier, the largest non-polar ice field in North America, and the largest glacier in North America. Now, th this past week, I, I got a chance to see my younger brother, and he told me all about what he did this past summer, and he led treks on a glacier in Alaska this past summer. Uh, week after week, day after day, he led groups of people along the, the glacier on ice climbing and, and, and hikes to see these ice uh, things and just all kinds of amazing stuff. I like to call him a professional adventurer. Uh, he, he just goes on adventures and manages to get paid for it. It's amazing. Um, but he likes to call himself an outdoor educator and guide because he loves sharing this with other people. He loves sharing these sights and, and these amazing things, you know, this land of superlatives. He loves showing it to everyone. You know, and he was telling me that, that he and his fellow guides probably know the glacier that, that they were on called the Mapanuska Glacier near Anchorage. Um, they probably know this glacier better than almost anyone else in the entire world. So they spend every day on it. They spend every day hiking it, guiding other people along it. He told me about how he gets to watch the glacier shift and change and sort of transform over the course of time. He, he talked about these deep holes that he would watch open up and, and then close back up as he sees their whole life cycle over the course of months. It, it's just incredible how much he, he's learned and, and, and was sharing with me. The, the two of us actually got to go on a hike this past week uh, up near the Enchantment. We went to Colchuck Lake, if you're familiar with that trail. Uh, and, and when we got to the, the lake and, and sort of the lookout, we got to see the mountains on the other side of the lake covered in snow and ice. And he pointed to it and he told me, hey, do you see that patch of ice right there and those, those little lines going through it? That's a glacier. And I was like, really? Wow. And he said, here's probably how that formed. And he started telling me about it. It was just amazing the kind of knowledge that he's picked up over his time in Alaska on a glacier, right? And so at the end of the summer, he and, and some of his friends and co-workers uh, just sort of shared this moment together before they all loaded up on the van to go to the airport to fly back to the lower 48, as they call it. Um, and they just sort of looked out over their little view from the campground that they left. And they just sort of in awe. The beauty, the wonder of the glacier, of the landscape. They just sort of shared a, a quiet moment of wow. 
This moment of, wow, look at this, is what our passage is like today. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, Paul launches into a prayer. He's, throughout the whole first part of Ephesians, been talking over and over and over again about all these grand and glorious things that God has done. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, he bows his knees, he lifts his voice, and he says to God, wow, he begins to pray. And so let's read this text together. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It's the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of this prayer, this blessing that we read today. God, I pray as we reflect on these words together that you would sharpen our minds, and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so, so this passage is a prayer. And, and I mentioned this last week, you know, chapter 3 begins uh, with Paul about to say this prayer. Right? If you look back at verse 1, he begins, this is the reason that I, Paul, and then he trails off and starts to talk about mystery and, and wonder and all of this stuff. And, and here in verse 14, he gets back on track. He says, all right, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Right? And he begins to, to let out this prayer. And so I want to ask, it's always important to ask when you come across a phrase like this in Scripture. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Well, for what reason? For what reason? Well, the reason is, is the whole letter up to this point. Right? In chapter 1, he has unpacked and talked about all that has happened in and through Christ. Right? That, that God has chosen and destined and bestowed and lavished us with his grace. That, that he has given us hope, made us an inheritance, filled us this is all chapter 1. And then you look at chapter 2, and, and Paul describes this movement from death to life to living. Uh, 
this movement from hostility and community to holiness and peace and new humanity in Christ. Right? Altogether in this letter, Paul has reflected on how God has adopted us as his children and also made us into a family. Everyone, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, all are made into one family together. So we have one father and one family. And here he turns these theological reflections he's been working on throughout the first part of this letter into heartfelt prayers. And thou mind before the Father, for whom everything earth takes his name. So he prays to a father and vows before a family that we all have one another. And in doing this, Paul models for us what it looks like to have a Christian faith. He shows us this model of faith because theology is always meant to lead doxology. All of these words about God are meant to lead to the worship of God. That's the whole point. This is the whole point. If all we've done is studied the Bible and we haven't been moved toward prayer, then we haven't really begun to live. Right? Theology is incredibly important it's only the beginning. Learning about God, studying all the things that God has done, it's sort of like studying a playbook or looking at all those dots and lines of music on the page. But if that playbook never turns into a game on the field, Right? Or if those dots and lines never turn into songs that are sung, well, then what's it for? Studying scripture and thinking about God meant to lead us to prayer, which transforms our whole lives. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Not just someone who knows about God, someone who prays, who speaks with. And so, in verse 16, Paul continues this prayer. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so again, as we read this, we can see that he's turning thoughts about God into prayer to God. Right? So throughout the letter, time and again, Paul has reflected on the riches of God's grace, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. He's, he's talked about that God is rich in mercy, great in love. He's talked about the riches of Christ and even the rich variety of God's wisdom. Here, he turns all of these things prayer, as he prays according to the riches of God's glory. According 
to the riches of God's glory. Also, Paul wrote us earlier about the power of God, the working of God's great power. This is at the end of chapter 1, that he put to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand. And here, he turns that into prayer as well, as he prays for God to strengthen the inner being, his power. So again, we can see how Paul turns theology into doxology. How he turns prose into prayer. Contemplation into conversation. Again, we see the paradox of power is associated with God. The power of God is so different than the power that we think of. The strength that Paul prays for is not physical strength in order to win a battle against flesh and blood, right? Later on in the letter, he's going to say that our battle is not with flesh and blood. Rather, what he prays for is strength in the inner being. Strength in the inner being, right? And, and the power that Paul prays for, it's not political power, right? Not authoritative or dominating power, but rather the power to love, right? We think of, of power often as, as the power to defeat or overcome our enemies. But Paul prays for power to actually become friends with, brothers and sisters even, with our enemies. He prays for us to have the power to love, an altogether different kind of power. This power to love is most perfectly pictured by God, who Paul addressed in this prayer as Father, Spirit, and Christ. Right? Have you seen that so far in these verses? He begins by praying to the Father and then also prays that we would be strengthened through his Spirit and that Christ would dwell in our hearts. In Christian theology, God is understood as triune, three and one. Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the idea here. And in this kind of bedrock of Christian theology is that God is not just a single being who kind of selfishly demands worship, but rather God is a whole community of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has always existed for all eternity. And they have always loved one another, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit perfectly. The theological word for this is perichoresis. Perichoresis. Uh, the image that this word conjures is that of a dance uh, with multiple partners. The word literally means to dance around. Uh, peri is in perimeter, right? Around, the, the, the surrounding part. And then choresis is in our word choreography, to dance. Right? To dance around perichoresis is this divine dance 
of Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the word that the early church writers used to talk about God as Father, Son, and Spirit. This image of all eternity, this triune community has been dancing this dance of love. As the Father encircles the Son with love, as the Son encircles the Father with love, and the Spirit encircles the others with love. And out of God's great power and eternal love, he speaks, let there be light. And creation bursts forth into existence as God continues this dance of love. And then this triune community speaks again, let us make humanity in our image. And he created us, male and female, in his image as God continues the divine dance of love, now joining hands with us. Now, we know the story and we know how it goes. Along the way, we kind of lose our footing right? We trip over ourselves and we fall out of this dance. But in Christ, God has extended his hand once more and invites us back into this dance of divine love. This perichoresis, this is essentially what Paul is praying for in this passage, that we would have the strength and power to join back into this dance of love with God. And his prayer goes on to describe this love in, in, in multiple different images. Uh, he prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And he prays that we would have the power to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's love. So rooted Right? Rooted is this sort of botanical image, uh, plants and, and trees and gardens, while grounded is an architectural image, you know, a foundation that you build upon. Right? So one is a prayer for deep roots. The other is a prayer for a firm foundation. But both of these make essentially the same point, that love, the love of God is something absolute, Something we can absolutely rely on, count on, and trust. This love cannot be uprooted. It cannot be upended. The love of God is deep and strong. It is unchanging. And it is sure. But then he goes on. And he kind of gives another image. He describes this love with breadth, length, height and depth. In other words, this love is spacious. It's massive. This love is expansive. Earlier this year, in the midst of feeling cooped up in quarantine, Caitlin and I took a day trip over to the coast one day. Uh, we got in the car and we just drove west all the way to the Pacific Ocean. We set up a blanket, we had a picnic, we walked along the water, and we stared out into that endless expanse. And it was amazing. And this is the kind of language that Paul is using 
to describe the love of God, right? You can walk back and forth along the beach. You can wade out into the ocean. You can look up to the heights of the heavens. Or you could plunge down to the depths underwater. Or change the image, right? Like my brother on the glacier. You can trek back and forth, up and down on the glacier. You can climb down into those ice canyons. And even after much exploration, there's always more to wonder at. Just look and go, wow. Wow. Here's something that I love about these images that Paul is using to describe love. Rooted and grounded are images of the immovable. Something that cannot move. They are firm and secure. But then the image of space in all directions, that requires movement, right? You can't explore the depths of God's love without splashing in the water a little bit. You can't explore the breadth and length without getting your hiking boots on, right? You've got to move to experience this. Now, I mentioned last week, the men's group has been reading this book about the history of Christian spirituality. And among the things we've been reading, uh, we've learned a bit about the monastic traditions of early Christianity. And there were a couple of core values that these monastic communities had. Uh, one of them was called stability, and the other one was called conversion. These are things they committed themselves to. They, com they committed themselves to stability, and they committed themselves to conversion. And, and what that looked like is, with stability, they committed to being faithful to a particular place. They would stay in the monastery. They would be committed to the, the brothers or the sisters, that were there with them, they would know these people. They would be with them. The stable commitment. But then also, uh, they committed to a life of constant conversion. That means they would always come to one another with their confessions. Uh, as they grew in God, as they constantly experienced transformation and newness of life, you see, these commitments of stability and conversion means that, that you're always going to be stable, but never static, right? You're always going to be moving, but never drifting. Or, or it reminds me a little bit of this bookmark that I once found uh, this, in a bookstore. It was this beautiful golden image of a tree with tall branches and deep roots. And then over the tree, there is sort of this flock of birds flying. And, and the bookmark said, there are two great gifts that we can give our children, roots and wings. I love that, right? This is the kind of father that God is. He is a father who gives his children both roots and wings. This is what God's love is like. It's always stable, but never static. It's always moving, but never drifting. It is never changing, but ever expanding. And so we can say with confidence that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but also that Jesus never grows old. Because God is always new 
God is always surprising us with the freshness of the gospel. This is why Paul prays for us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Because knowing is not something that you can check off a list and be done with like a college degree. We can know the love of God, but we will never, ever be finished knowing it. This divine dance will continue into all of eternity. Ancient, but always new. Never changing, but ever expanding. And this is precisely what Paul emphasizes in the last two verses. As he closed this prayer, he closes this prayer with praise. And he uses a very traditional formula of, of doxology, uh, an address, a praise, and then a, a time formula. So to him, be glory forever. To him, be glory forever. Uh, he, he uses these three things. So in that first one, the address to him, Paul reemphasizes God's power and he uses superlatives uh, that makes all of those Alaskan superlatives, the land superlatives, those glaciers look tiny in comparison to what Paul is talking about. The phrase abundantly far more, or some other translations say immeasurably more. It's really difficult to translate because Paul just tacks on one enhancer after another, like a kid describing their superpowers. You know, my superpowers are the bestest, 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 right? You just add on as many qualifiers as you can to make it the best. This is what Paul is doing. The, the word that's translated abundantly or immeasurably in the Greek is hyper ek parisu. Hyper ek parisu. Now, let me break this down for you a little bit. All right. The base word is this word parisu, which by itself means abundance or excess, right? Too much. It's the same word that's used to describe the leftovers after Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000, right? Everyone ate their fill and there were 12 baskets left over, right? Parisu is the word that's used to describe them. But then Paul adds on to that word, ek parisu. You know, the word ek means out. Like if you fill up a glass with water uh, a little too high and then it spills out over the side, right? It's not just abundance, but overabundance, ek parisu. But then Paul adds yet another enhancer onto this, hyper ek parisu. And the word hyper in Greek works the same way that it does in English. And so this word abundantly is more accurately translated hyper over abundance. That would be a great thing to find in your Bible, the hyper over abundance of God, right? So who is Paul praising? Well, the God whose power at work within us is able to accomplish hyper over abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. This is a God who will never cease to blow your mind again and again and again. And what is Paul's praise? What does he praise God about? Well, his praise is that this hyper over abundantly more God would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I get 
that God can be glorified in Jesus, right? Jesus lived a perfect, spotless life. Jesus is part of the Trinity. He's raised from the dead and seated over all things, right? I, I get that. But the church, right? The church somehow shows off this glory of this hyper over abundantly more God. Well, yeah, that's exactly what Paul says here, what Paul prays here. And this goes right back to the mystery that we looked at in the earlier part of this chapter last week, or the fullness that Paul writes about at the end of chapter 1. The church is filled with the fullness of this constantly mind-blowing God. Because in Christ, we join in with the divine dance of love. And we too become a community that encircles one another with love, that encircles our neighbors with love, that even encircles our enemies with love. Inviting everyone to join hands with us as we join hands with the Trinity. And the church becomes this picture of God's glory on earth, a glimpse of the kingdom of God in the world. And finally, this kingdom, this dance goes on to all generations forever and ever. Just as God's love expands beyond comprehensible space, so it also extends beyond imaginable time. We so easily become bored as things get old to us, but the love and the glory of God are always new. They stretch beyond space and time into eternity. Now, we can't comprehend this, right? That's what Paul has said. So I don't know exactly what it will be like when the kingdom of God comes in fullness. But I know that it's not going to be boring. It's not going to be just floating around on a bunch of clouds forever. Whatever it is, it is going to be an eternity of awe and wonder that will never grow old as all of our theology is permanently transformed into prayer, as all of our Bible studies give way to eternal glory forever and ever. Amen.